Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Kurowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, soon-to-be Dr. Eugene Kim. Uh, Eugene is a current medical student, and he is just one cool cat. Uh, I had an absolute blast. He, he was one of the first conversations that I had with somebody uh, since we finished up the basement slash office area uh, downstairs, and it was fun having him come over and just get to really connect. And he has an amazing podcast called Movement and Mind. I'm sorry, that is his website, Movement and Mindfulness. Uh, but he has the On Death podcast. And the level of introspection that goes into his podcast, you could just see that coming out in our interview uh, from things to fatherhood, grandfatherhood that we're talking about, uh, just movement, hunting. I mean, we go so many deep places. Uh, and this is sure just to be an awesome episode. I really hope you guys enjoy and just check out some of his stuff because you are going to really, really, after listening to this, want to check it out and you will be pleasantly surprised. So thank you again and enjoy. Alrighty guys, and welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And after a little uh, technical difficulties, uh, Eugene Kim is on is is here with me today. Uh, and Eugene, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is share with us your health journey up to this point. I um, started, so it's like I could tell you what brought me here, or I could t- like I don't know if I have like a health journey. You know, like I have like a relationship with my body that has changed. Um, let's start there. And, uh, so like my, my first memory of like a relationship with my body was like being like a really skinny, uh, young, like the only Asian guy in my whole class and I was skinny and it was in like middle school, high school. And I remember, uh, doing like, just coming to the realization, like I should do some pushups. And then uh, I started doing pushups, uh, like relatively regularly, like every day. And uh, then I could see my body changing. Like I could see my body growing. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And then you, I flash forward to I, I rode in, for high school and uh, in college uh, on the crew team. Uh, and um, there I learned how to work, like work a lot because uh, rowing is the same movement over and over again. And so I like I, that was good. I think it was good character development for me. Um, but I got into like, it, because it's that one pattern, I saw people like dropping like flies, like back, like disc issues, back problems. Um, and you're, that's like a very still unilateral sport, right? Like yeah. you're still, you pull only to one side pretty yeah. much. Okay. Within, within like collegiate, uh, and like high school level, usually you're sweeping, which means you have the one oar, uh, and so you're, and you only row on that one side. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, because one hand does uh, different things. So like when you try to switch, it's a little bit difficult, uh, as you get to like an adult level, then you have the, the two oars. So okay. when you're more solo. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely like, and I've, I know that I've developed a lot and I'm still, I feel like still kind of working on the echoes of some of those imbalances of like reaching far on my right side, not as far on my left side. Um, and all, all the things that go along with it. And, uh, so I, like rowing, I was good for me. I, I got some leadership roles. I was the captain of my varsity crew team. Um, and it was good for me in that way, but I was also like young. I thought there's like the, the saying in like the, in like the Marines is like young, dumb and full of cum. And so (laughs) I I had like all like, so once, once the crew team, once I graduated, I had, uh, I had all this like, "Ah." and so I was like, what do I throw it into next and I had buddies who um as I was like as I was 
grad, as like entering junior senior year, uh, they were getting really into CrossFit, and this was like probably 2009, so it was like pretty early in the game. Right. Um, and they were following the main site there, and uh, they were like, "Hey, you should do some workouts with us." And which uh, that was also all there was at the time. All it was basically, there was. it was main site or nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they were, <laughs> they like had worked out with some other buddies back at their gym, and they so, and one of my friends he had uh, like a really old uh, old school gym, uh, CrossFit gym. So uh, I started doing workouts with them every once in a while, and then uh, I really dove into it, especially once uh, crew was over and once I graduated, because I was like, what else am I going to do? Um, and I liked it a lot. I wasn't very good at it in terms of like the competitor sense, but I like to hang out with dudes who were trying to like, you know, were like the faux competitor CrossFit guys. Um, it was a lot of fun, and I think that CrossFit helped me develop a really broad it, it, it was a very good thing for me to learn about because of the way that there's the whole like, you know, you should, this modality is broadly applicable to everybody. Uh, you don't want everyone following the same programming, but the same mindset and tools can work for everyone of, of like, you know, if, uh, assuming you apply them appropriately. And uh, so I, I did a lot of CrossFit myself, and then I moved up to New Hampshire, uh, back home, uh, to begin application process for medical school. And while I was there, I then went from like a Eugene the athlete role to Eugene the coach. And I went to go, I went back to back home, and I coached my old cross uh, crew team. So like my old high school team. And that was a really rewarding process of trying to like understand how do you coach these kids when I used to be in their, their roles. And then I also coached uh, at a CrossFit gym, uh, Ever Proven CrossFit um, and CrossFit Juggernaut. And uh, there I really learned like how do you take these ideas that, you, that work for me fine, uh, but then how do I apply them to other people? And so that was a really interesting uh, experience because that has also informed a lot of like how I think about um, like sort of, I, I sort of like take that lens and apply it to mental health. And that's uh, where I want to go with it uh, as like a future psychiatrist. And so uh, once I started coaching, I really got into the coach hat. I really loved coaching. It's, it's uh, especially getting me when I had my crew team, uh, it was like these like 50, 60 kids, like a platoon size of, uh, of kids <laughs> that, uh, and I worked with them every day. So I, I was a, really able to get like a group dynamic going and like a really nice, um, like team atmosphere that I would really wanted to foster be that in the way that I, I never had growing up as a, as a teen. Like I, I felt like I was like, Oh, I feel like this isn't the right. I don't know. It wasn't quite for me. And then I, I feel like it was, it was nice to be able to give that back uh, to another generation. And, um, and then when I, uh, once I got the acceptance for med school, I, I went off to South Florida to Tampa, uh, for med school. And I did some weightlifting down there, uh, because I was like, Oh, I don't really want to do CrossFit. I kind of, I'm a little like, tuckered out on that uh but i'd like to do some weightlifting on my own uh with the aims of uh competitive weightlifting and then i kind of realized like oh i don't really have the time to, to devote you know <laughs> like the hours the food all that as like a single dude uh and then i start and then so once i once i uh, got off that I was like maybe I should spend some time away from the barbell for a little while and then I got into jiu-jitsu uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu under Marcio Cruz uh, who is a, a like a within uh, BJJ world he's he's a pretty big name and so I was able to train at his uh, place uh, train there for about like nine months a year and competed um, and that was also a really interesting experience because it was like the first time I had really done a like a real like one-on-one -on -one competition in my life uh, you know when I 
did crew. It was me and eight dudes. We're like ride or die together. Um, oh, and then uh, when I did CrossFit, it's not you're not it's you're you're an individual, but you're not like against the other person necessarily. It's not sure, like a zero sure. sum. You're still just whatever you can do. That's what you can do. It doesn't necessarily matter what the other person exactly. Does. Versus yeah. like jujitsu, where it's like. It's me or this dude. Right. One of one of us is going to win. One of us right. is going to lose. And it's, so that was a very, uh, very interesting experience. And now, um, now I'm just kind of like uh, now that I'm here up in Pennsylvania, I'm on my clinical years in medical school. Now I'm trying to like figure out what do I want to do. I got a baby coming up on the way, and it's like, uh, how do I want to move uh, going into like this next chapter of my life? Because it's like, do I want to move the same way that I did when I was young, dumb, and full of cum? Or do I want to like change it up and be able to play uh, and interact with this child in a way that I wasn't interact? Like I feel like my parents didn't have like a, a physical experience. They 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 didn't interact with me very physically, um, and so I want to see what that would be like for a kid. Like to how do I do that in the same way? Like how do I create a team environment for the next generation of crew kids? How do I create like a physical upbringing for a child? that I don't see around me. So I have to sort of create my own framework because I don't see very many people raising their children in a physical way, if that makes sense. Well, kind of, but I'm curious, like, what that looks like for you. Like, uh, well, I mean, for example, like, okay, I was out crawling in the yard before you came here. But I mean, is that what it's like? Is it, and also, how did your parents, if it was like lack of physical, was it, was it just that you maybe wanted something different and maybe can now express that yeah. too? Uh, how, how does that maybe full picture look going forward for yeah, you? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like I, I guess like when I, when I think of it, I want like a li- like I want a child who is far more physically capable than I was at their age. Okay. Like I want to be able to raise like a ninja that I'm like, uh, have you seen the, the, the new Incredibles? No, no, we were just talking about it. You should it, see though. it. Yeah. Uh, but there's, it's just like this funny, like, like, oh, yeah, you can do this cool stuff. And then it's like, oh, no, you can do all this cool stuff. <laughs> and like that, that's kind of like the relationship I want. I want to be like, how did you get up there? And how are you going to get down safely? <laughs> like that kind of like like impression, impressive, like, like oh, wow, that's really cool. But then also followed by like, a, oh, dear, now I've unlocked, the, now, now you've unlocked these skills. How are we going to deal with this as, like together so you can uh, explore this space and be like maybe it's a climbing ability safely and and like how do i create the framework and so like what would that look like overall i'm not really sure because i there there i don't feel like there are are great examples like i was just talking with Mackenzie the other day about like um like i was thinking about like when a child goes goes from point a to point b now uh generally you put them in the stroller you walk on flat ground and the baby is conveyed like uh, a sack of potatoes from point A to point B. And when I was thinking about it in terms of like a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, uh, 10,000 years ago, in order for baby to go from point A to point B, we would carry baby and baby would be jostled. And that jostling, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I feel like that jostling is uh, something that we've lost. And so like, how would I jostle baby uh, carrying them? Like, would I, like, I know you have the backpack, the baby backpack. I do either... Uh, right now, like Max, I'll switch him around within the next couple months onto the back. Right now, he's still on the front. But mm-hmm. were you talking about the jostling? That was like immediate trigger. Uh, we were over at the park yesterday, and there's a baseball field, and there's lines, and Cooper was hopping back and forth. So uh, there I go, I strap Max, and he's in front of me. I 
hold him a little bit tighter and I'm jumping over the lines and he's just giggling up the storm <laughs> too, right? So it's like, is he enjoying it? I, I tend to think so. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, how do you, yeah, like, uh, and then like crawling around like on the front yard, it's like that's like creating an example for the child that like standing and walking isn't the end all be all. Like it is, sure. not, it is not like, it's cool. It's, it's a great skill to be able to do. That's but, fantastic actually. <laughs> no, because from the standpoint of, I, I think most kids want to walk, right? They mm. see us doing it, but I hadn't thought about it. Like there's always that, that, um, try and pull them up, try and get them going mm. earlier. And as a physical therapist, like that's something I recognize and have studied, um, where it's like, you have to let them go through those developmental stages of proper crawling, proper mm. pulling themselves up, so on and so forth. But thinking of it, it's like, that's not the ultimate goal necessarily. Like that's a fascinating thing too, mm. where I hadn't thought about it from that same way. It's like, no, just show them other modes of transportation. Mm-hmm. If you will. There are other ways. Or locomotion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, uh, I know that like uh, one thing that I've read about is like um, the reason why uh, like Western people age really poorly is we are our only way of thinking about interacting with the world is while standing or sitting, and there's no crawling involved. So like you don't like if you're if you walk around, it's a long way to fall. Uh, versus if you crawl like if you're like i know like a lot like i haven't spent much time in korea i spent like a couple months a couple weeks and um and my parents have westernized pretty strongly uh but like from my understanding is like a lot of times like at least and even like now uh, a lot of uh asia has like started to westernize uh, away from this of of, like being able to like stay a lot on the ground Mm mm-hmm where like if you kind of crawl it might not feel like to to a lot, us it might not feel dignified but it is a a perfectly acceptable way of locomotion and if you have low set chair low set tables so you're sitting on the ground um it's just like there's there's not very far to fall and we we did that far longer far we did that for, before we started walking you know and uh being able to so like if i have my grand if i have my parents around like maybe I encourage them to crawl around with the kid and so that they see like, Oh, grandma's walking around on the ground. That's totally fine. Um, and like walking upright is great. And like dogs crawl around. It's, I don't know. It's just like, a, of like a creating a different language. And then also, um, how little hanging we do in our environments because we don't create environments that are hang hangable. Um, so like, uh, I'm a big fan of slack lines and, um, like I have in my brain, like envisioned, um, like an indoor, like, so you would connect uh, a stud, mm-hmm. you create a loop and then you'd have lines inside the house. So it's almost like an indoor web. And it doesn't have to be slack. Like classic slack lining. I always think of is on your feet, mm-hmm. like walking along a exactly. rope, but it doesn't have to be. Exactly. Exactly. Like it can be like, almost think of it like a vine. And so you hang below it and you walk and you convey yourself that way. Or maybe you just like sit on the line uh, with your, just your butt and you just balance and you just try to make your way across this web. And maybe some of the lines are taut and some of them are really slack and the slack ones require a lot more, um, coordination and, and, and uh, like this core strength because you have to generate the stability, uh, that you would get from like a very taut line. And so like trying to create like an, like, how do I, how would I create an environment for a child growing up? Uh, because kids, uh, from my understanding, like I have never, re- I haven't done it with other kids because I'm afraid that uh, the parents would not be cool with it. But just like uh, my understanding is, uh, children are are able from a very young age to hang and to hold on, right? And so like, 
encouraging that like uh maybe like i don't you know like maybe i shouldn't let go of my kid when they're holding on to my belly but like i feel like a child should be able to hold on yeah. in the same way like a rhesus monkey can just like hold on for dear life while mom is like running around yeah and that's so i mean i said we we're out crawling in the front yard uh depending on the size of the branch i'll put max up there let him hang on and same thing he's giggling like crazy now i keep my hands three Close. inches from him right <laughs> uh but still to do that like the, where I was thinking about that when you were saying is not just hanging, just closed kinetic chain in general for the upper extremities. Mm -hmm. So I saw a very cool um, diagram. This has got to be probably seven, eight years ago. I was taking a class and it was of dermatomes and how it lines up when you get on your hands and knees and oh. how they go across. If you think about it and if you look up a picture of it, it's fascinating to look at that way. But then also like the spine of the scapula. So why is that there? Like if you look at it then from a quadruped position, now it looks just like the hip mm -hmm. and you have that same ridge of bone coming up there to create more stability for you when you would go down onto your hands. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just whether it's a pulling, hanging, whether it's a pushing, uh, but anything where that object is basically the fixed and you're moving across it like you do with your feet all the time, but very rarely, I mean, of course, you can do it walking on your hands, but I'm just talking in, in general. Hey, it could be pulling across that slack line. It's anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree. I think that's incredibly important for just the health of the shoulder, the upper back, the neck, like all of the above. And just talking about aging, it's like, okay, well, we, we think about um, the – if we're talking like Asian cultures, like the squatting, the sitting lower, mm -hmm. right? You were saying there. So it's, okay, well, they don't have knee replacements. over Like they don't have the hip replacements mm -hmm. that we have in America – uh, but when we're talking about the crawling or the, the hanging, we don't take that into consideration necessarily either for the health of just the upper body then mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Like I think of us right now, um, as like a very transitional species, like we're in this really weird time of change and we're going somewhere else and that's fine. Um, and maybe it's weird, but we're going somewhere else and, um, we need to respect where we've come from. And that's the, the, the quadruped, the hanging ape, um, and being able to respect that physically as we go towards this, like, I don't know, maybe it's a little dystopian of just like flat surfaces, 90 degree angles. And cause <laughs> they're, they're e perfect. Yeah, yeah. Cause they're easy to build. Uh, the, the, the materials that we have are, are conducive to that. The drywall needs the, you know, it's, it's just like making a drywall curved surface is a pain in the ass. Um, and so like understanding like what, what tools we have available and like how that is going to shape, uh, what the next generations of, of us are going to be like, but while trying to respect like where we've come from so that we are like still sane, you know? So where are we going? I don't know. It's going to be really weird. <laughs> I, uh, so like, <laughs> so, uh, we didn't talk about this before, but one thing yeah, for me uh, you know, in, in keeping with like trying to push my own boundaries for this child coming in is, uh, is, is insect tending. So, uh, I've, I've, uh, just started, I like, I, I've been doing this for maybe a couple weeks now of, uh, I, I bought this, uh, this called the live and hive and it's off of uh, Kickstarter and it's for mealworms. Yeah. And so, uh, I have, uh, all these mealworms that I'm raising and uh, they're going through their, their life cycle right now. There were worms. Now they're pupating and now they're turning into beetles and hopefully they're going to start laying eggs for me. 
and uh, you know the, the whole goal of this is to eat them for sustenance. Um, I wouldn't be able to support. I wouldn't be able to like replace all of my protein with these with these mealworms, um, but uh, at least uh, enough that I have to push my own boundaries with insects. I find them very gross, uh, especially when I first got them. Live was, cook them? Like what do you? Oh, I, so I've eaten one live, um, but I did I I did so in what I feel like was a a very. Uh, uh, respectful manner, like I thanked the mealworm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some buddies, and we crunched them. So it was like a like immediate, death. yeah, yeah. Um, the cleanest way that you could do it, right? Yeah, an immediate, a, an immediate death versus like trying to draw it out. Um, and then, uh, but in theory, so what I would do is I would take them, I would freeze them, and then I would put them in. I, would, I could like throw them on top of a salad. Yeah. Or um, uh, Mackenzie, she's thinking about uh, grinding them up and using them almost like a flour. Sure. And being able to add them as a base to other things. Um, and I want to, so I even like, think of just like, if you can end their life quickly, but then just like throw them in a shake or something like yeah. mix them up with some greens, even yeah. like something like that. Yeah. And they're, they're all they eat are oats and carrots right now. And uh, like a little bit of coffee grounds. And so I know what they're eating. Yeah. I know that they're living a life that is, uh, to them, uh, like enjoyable because, you know, insects love. Uh, being in huge numbers together okay they love just like ride like i I read that their their skins develop better when they are in higher numbers because they need each other to rub against um versus you know like a a chicken or a pig or a cow uh they're not supposed they're they're not like from a from a, a larger perspective supposed to have that close contact like some but more freedom versus like an insect where it's like they love it and uh, like me pushing my boundaries to to have these mealworms, I like uh, I, I remember I was sweating so much when I was filtering them out. Like I was just like, oh my, like it's a visceral reaction. I, I was very uncomfortable touching them. I have a roommate and he just he lo- he has like a morbid curiosity with insects, so he just dug all his hands in there. The mealworms are just crawling over his fingers, and I was just like, ah, oh, it's so gross. Uh, but now I'm I'm you know I'm able to use so. Uh, I, I'm using, using chopsticks to pull out the pupae because uh, one of the features is, isn't quite uh, working right now and I have to fix that. Uh, but being being way more comfortable interacting with these mealworms and, and like understanding like, oh, this is their fear reaction. When I pick up a pupae, it's like butt wiggles. But if I pick it up here, they're fine. I, I, I can manage them. And so like understanding like how does this, how does this organism react in its very different uh, life cycles. And then if I have that discomfort now, and I, I'm raising a child to eat uh, from from a very young age. They'll never think about it. Exactly. Yeah. They'll never. They'll have no <laughs> hangups. And like me, like I can see how uh, me interacting with these mealworms affects the way that I interact with other insects, so other grasshoppers or crickets that show up in the house. Crickets was going to be my question for you because that I know, like cricket powder or whatever mm-hmm. is is a thing right now. Like, did you come across any? cricket growing stations oh, or not yet okay uh, i don't know I, I don't know I, that seems like it would be more difficult because that seem they would need their space to if you want to raise them in the most natural environment possible like they're jumping they're moving like mm-hmm. worms they're just kind of rooting around digging yeah. i think more so yeah exactly and like cricket and i yeah and like because like as a generation means of protein they're such an efficient they're, they're they generate so much uh, so fast and uh, compared to like a a cow, like yeah. the the input output, the for these mealworms uh, is just some oats and some carrot, and they 
generates so much protein mm -hmm. uh and it's a it's a on a larger like on a larger macro scale it would just be a very sustainable uh versus you know trying to get all of your protein from a cow which requires so much upkeep and to to maintain that protein and it's not that we shouldn't have cows but whether they should be available in in the quantities and in, in the frequency that we have it now is, is a question and so like as in terms of like where are we going i hope more towards like an insect-based uh because there, there's so much more insects than there are these other like yeah the biomass of the world of insects I forget like it, it's just an astronomical number if you look at it on mm -hmm. Earth then too yeah and we've changed how much we've we've done so much as humans in terms of like like uh, spraying and uh, and fostering these other animals and just like how we've changed it like the deer population compared to the cow population it's just like really wild to think about how much change is going on and. Uh, like my one little like little silo of like okay this is something that I can do is raise mealworms for my kid uh, so that they will at least be able to interact with the world far differently than I ever was able to. Well, let's take this into hunting because now I'm well no because we had talked about that a little bit beforehand. Mm -hmm. So how does maybe hunting slash wild foraging slash growing your own food like where do you all see where where do you see all of those other factors coming in maybe? Um, I, so like I, so, so within the context of Pennsylvania and the place that I live right now, sure. um, something that I, and this is also me trying to push my own barriers is like, I've never grown up hunting. I never grew up fishing. Um, my dad always wanted to take me fishing, but never got around to it. And so as like, uh, when I came up here, I have a friend, uh, who was in the year above me who just went, uh, to Texas for his first year of residency. He, he grew up, he, he sort of grew up hunting and, and really developed a fascination and love of hunting. Um, and, uh, so he took me out hunting, uh, he took me, um, out hunting a couple times. We caught some Canadian geese. Uh, but what, what I'm really thinking about is, uh, is roadkill, is roadkill deer, because you see that, especially here in Pennsylvania, uh, with the, with the, the highway systems that we have is just not conducive to the, the safe passage of wildlife. And so you'll see very often, like I saw here on the way over, mm. I saw a, a pretty a pretty bloated uh, lady doe on the side of the road uh, pulling onto seventy eight, and uh, uh, being come like so. So last fall, um, as it started to get colder, I uh, found a couple roadkill, and with my buddy Mike, uh, we were able to process the animal into a lot of really good food, a lot of lovely venison, and and it's a it for me is a very uh, with roadkill is a very lovely interaction because this is an animal that is otherwise wasted. Uh, the person that killed the animal was probably really pissed off. <laughs> like yeah. not, there's no joy in the death yeah. there. And, um, so there have been a couple of times where I pulled off the road, um, inspected the animal to see, is this, is this salvageable? Is this something that I can do in the time that I have right now? Because, okay, it's like seven o'clock and coming from home or I'm coming from clinic. Uh, the sun's going down and this is going to be, uh, at least like a three or four hour project to, to just quarter the animal. And then it's a question of how much meat is available. Is the, are the guts in intact and would I be doing a lot of cleaning? Um, like all of that. And sometimes I've, and uh, so I've, I've collected two roadkill and I've said no to about three or four and to the three or four, I'm able to at least be like, Hey, uh, sorry. And, uh, but you know, I, I can't, I, I don't think that this, I don't think I can do anything with you because of, of the way that things are right now. And so just the pull, safety factor just, for, just yeah. Safe, yeah, like yeah. on the side of the road. And so I'll pull them off into a ditch and allow them to decompose at least in a ditch rather than 
on the side of the asphalt with everybody that sees the carcass being like, ew, gross, you know, like having that, like being able to say, at least you can pat, at least you can decompose in peace on the side and maybe some other animals uh, will be able to safely get to you uh, on the side of the road. And so interacting with wildlife in that way. And uh, in terms of like hunting, um, I I love hunting, but it's like, it's a whole practice and, um, you know, going outside uh, waking up at the ass crack of dawn, uh, going up in a tree, waiting all day for something to maybe walk by is a whole set of, is a huge amount of time. And then once you get the animal, then it's a question of like bringing it home, quartering it, uh, processing the meat. Um, and that's a whole thing. And like right now in terms of time, like I don't feel like I have the time to be able to develop the skills appropriately. Um, and so I want to hunt. I want to have the only meat that we have in our home to be either meat that I've, uh, to be at a protein that I've raised from the mealworms or have been able to say like, I saw this animal alive. I transitioned it to death, uh, with love. And, um, and now we hold it together and we're going to make some delicious food with it. I couldn't agree more. Uh, <laughs> and so I guess it's, it's, it's tough because as a westernized society we are truly just time crunched mm-hmm. and and we see that as a factor but i think then also you recognize this is probably going to be right now one of the busiest times of your life mm-hmm. right you, you in a year or two years three years like you you can actually probably see okay you can at least cultivate some time to develop a practice mm-hmm. like that i mean is that something you see in the near future to really hone in on them i'd love to um i know because i know that there are like i've been talking with a lot of people about this and like all of the skills that you gain along the way of hunting in terms of being able to um drop into a plate like so let's say i drive 45 minutes uh six hours away into like the middle of nowhere how do i then drop into that place how do i like allow myself to be a part of the landscape rather than being a loud human walking my way through. And so like that alone is an amazing skill. And uh, if I want to be able to catch anything I want to, or if I want to be able to kill anything within like visual range, I need to be able to do that. And then there's also the question. And to do so with, we're talking uh, just to give everybody context, like archery specifically. Yes. Uh, When you have a high power rifle with a scope, like you better be taking something a hundred plus yards away and, relatively easily or a good clean mm-hmm. kill uh it's much easier practice to cultivate than it is to like you said from here to the wall see something take something mm-hmm. uh safely as well exactly and like that's the other thing is like uh like rifle hunting i know would be a lot more conducive to that because then i wouldn't yeah. need to generate those or, and, and develop those skills within myself but it's a question of like do i want to allow myself that that bypass and like would i want to hunt with a bow that i purchased versus a bow that i made and like, am I creating more obstacles for myself so that I do not even pursue any of these skills? Or am I reasonably like understanding like what is my level of, of, uh, of um, you know, time involvement? And like, so it's a question, it's something that I'm grappling with. Like, is it, sh- should I not be hunting at all right now? Because I feel like I don't have the time to v- develop all of the skills that I want. And am I making too high of a wall to climb? Or should I lower the bar, go out there with a shotgun uh, and, and see what happens for, you know, and like, it's, it's a hard question to answer because like I, I want to develop these skills and I want to have these skills ready for when my child is ready to participate if they want to participate. Um, and so that's, that, those are the other questions. Like how many hurdles am I making for myself when it's like, this should be simple. I mean, 
personally, I look at it as, okay, I would rather somebody, whether it's you or whoever it is, right? It's, I would say if you're going to at least take the time to harvest your own animal, I think whatever means that you would use to use that would still be the better alternative than saying, uh, well, you know what? I can't do it for the next, call it two years because of time. Well, then you look at it in two years and now you have to develop so many more skills at that time where now you might've gone and you can at least start developing those skills along the way of, okay, you don't have to get as close with a rifle, but you can still take the tracking and you can still figure out, okay, I know how I'm supposed to process the game. So you're already mm-hmm. developing skills along the way. So then when you're able to jump in with the higher level skills of, okay, that you don't have to learn 10 different things at once. Now maybe it's, you only have to learn three different things. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I guess you have to meet yourself where you're at. Exactly. And like, <laughs> it's a question of like, do I want to spend a day, like a full day and a half away from my pregnant wife right now? And like, that's yeah. the other question. And like, do I, or can it wait until we have a kid? But then once we have a kid, do I want to spend a day and a half away from my kid and my, my wife? You know, and it's like, that's a whole, and that's the other thing. That's the thing about hunting that is difficult for me right now is it's so much time away. Like if I, yes. I, I want, I, agree. I yes. want, I love I love Mackenzie and I love the the dog that we have and I love the baby that's incoming. Uh, and so it's like, it, to me, hunting seems like, like in terms of like where it happens in your life, uh, right now it seems like it's like, it's either young, dumb and full of cum or retired and like, we want to get away from your family almost. Like it's like, cause like right now when I want to be, be present and be with them, it's tough to be like, bye and like you know and like that's that's really really tough and so that's those are all the things that i'm juggling so in terms that's and that's just that's just the hunting and then there's the whole foraging and um like growing foraging is so I'll, I'll, I'll say just from we were out foraging yesterday it's a much easier practice to integrate with everybody which exactly. is the beauty of it mm-hmm. uh so there is always <laughs> excuse me there's there's a big difference within the two uh at the same time you look at that volume of food uh, in one day, you could ne- to forage that much food for. I'm talking maybe purely calorie sense mm-hmm. that you could take from one animal from a day, day and a half. It's a very different ballgame mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So like, I, I've I've really enjoyed foraging, and uh, and in terms of like the land that we're living on right now, I'm uh, we're renting it, and uh, with the with the current. Uh, owner of the, of the land he we've talked with him and he's like do whatever you want with it and we'll do whatever i want with it later you know it's, which is nice and it's just like a very funny game of like he's called he called a bunch of these trees like weed trees and they just started growing and now they're just full size and uh and then when i looked back when i went back into the same area and looked at them it's like oh no those are food those are black walnuts and they have really great nuts in the fall and uh with, with like protein carbohydrates and fat all in one, the, the nuts kind of a pain in the ass to get at, but once you get at it, the the, the walnut itself, the black walnut, is delicious. It's fruity. It's almost like apple-y. Um, but see, you also have that appreciation of most people don't recognize that a nut in general is a lot harder to get to <laughs> than just a handful out of the bag. Like mm. having that appreciation in and of itself is, I think, an amazing thing for you to have too. Yeah, yeah. Just like, I, if, okay, if I want to eat like a handful of, of black walnut, <laughs> I need to spend twenty to thirty minutes working working with a hammer and a, a, a basically an anvil to basically to, to crack it open and get at it and i have to do it carefully if i want actual meat to like good meat to be able to eat and uh and so like every every season i've tried i have a bunch of these foraging books by sam thayer 
Um, if you haven't checked those out, you should definitely should if you're in, interested in Samuel Thayer. Um, and uh, he uh, and, and I try to find at least like one or two plants every season just to introduce myself with. And uh, this past like early summer, late spring was poke. Um, and just being able to interact with these plants and just build like a repertoire. So like when I look at a forest, when I look at like uh, like like out of your backyard to the forest, I can be like, that's not just a wall of green. There's some black walnut. There's some oak. There's some poke. There's some uh, wood sorrel. Like all of that kind of stuff. Being able to like interact with all of those plants. Um, and like you said, it's much more of a a regular practice because every walk I go on, I'm like, oh, the, the cherries look a little bit better today. Let me see, check them out today. Um, and being able to interact with with the landscape that way is also something that I didn't have growing up. And so that that's something that I want to be able to, to to give to my kids is like not necessarily like oh, these trees are cool because they're cool looking uh, and their leaves are a pain in the ass uh, in the fall. But it's more like this: these are trees that give us food. Uh, these are trees that give us uh, like their, their, their sap uh, in, the, in, in the winter and like being able to interact with your landscape that way. So like what would be like a feral backyard to some, to me would be like, oh, that's an entire garden. Uh, is being able to say like that's that's where I get a lot of my food and so like that that's the other thing is like because foraging it's not just grabbing the food it's also processing the food and so that's a whole other layer of time and commitment on top of it uh, when you know we're busy right now. I'm curious because this is something then I heard you talk about on one of your more recent podcasts I think is you're excited to be a grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> I think that this this is almost like this. These are very grandfatherly things to talk about. In a sense. <laughs> no, because you're looking at it from you said like the time available now, but like you said, it's almost when you know, when you're a grandfather, you know you'll have this time. So, what what is the fascination though of the grandfather? And you related to almost like the shaman role as well. Yeah, I think uh, uh, grandfather is nice, or like grandparents is nice because you get to. Um, a harvest whatever you've you've planted earlier in life um and i hope to plant a lot of things in the coming years um and you, it allows you detachment um from the day-to-day -day craziness of having a child because <laughs> yeah. you know it's like uh going through my pediatrics rotations here in lehigh valley um i was really struck by like how frazzled and panicked all the parents were like i never really saw any like anyone that seemed like they had all of their shit together like they were all, everybody was like a little bit like ah. yeah. <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> like one vomit and poop in the wrong place will like kind of send someone down a spiral and that's fine because that's what parenthood is is but you are so in it and uh i feel like grandfather or grandparenthood allows you a little bit of distance where you can kind of uh, be able to say it, 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 uh, it gives you that distance to be able to say like, what, uh, what should you do? Or like, how can, how can you guide things in a, in a, a different way versus like, you know, it's sort of like, like the, the world-class athlete that then becomes a coach. Like you, like it, that distance allows you a different relationship to the grind of showing up every day and, uh, like going to sleep when you don't want to go to sleep or, you know, all of that, uh, it allows you a little bit distance to be able to be like, I understand kind of what you're going through. It sucks, but here, here are some things that you should be focusing on right now. And I think that's a very interesting part of grandfatherhood. And I'm, I'm, 
more than willing to put in my hours of suck <laughs> like with the kids that's fine uh in order to get there um i just i feel like uh parenthood is great but it's also like like i know from me and my parents like i didn't stop be i i'm still kind of a turd you know like i'm st- i'm still <laughs> like a big drain financially i'm still drained emotionally on them and i'm 28 29 right now and it's like they're not done you know and so being able to when they have when when Mackenzie and I have our child, they're they're more able to like shift focus and go to the next generation. And I think that's a very nice thing to realize is like parenthood, you're never really over, but with grandparenthood, it starts and it ends, you know? It's just what I can see in my parents right now and Julie's parents, like that's exactly it though, is you have that and, and they'll even say it's like after they spend a day with the boys or something, it's like exhausted like i'm ready to go back to hey i can just mm-hmm. go have a nice dinner now mm-hmm. and relax rather than trying to get everybody their food i'll eat all the sleep all dressed all cleaned mm-hmm. all play all whatever it is yeah uh, and, and it goes from just that I, I i think of things in responsibility of there's the i when you're only responsible for yourself mm-hmm. there's the we when it's like just you and a partner and then there's the all where it's okay now it's hey it's it's three it's four it's it's however many are in mm-hmm. your tribe your little close-knit family there and that grandfather or grandparent role in general it, it kind of takes it back a little more just to the we mm-hmm. where you, you have that responsibility for the others but that level is completely different and mm-hmm. the time to commit to what it is that you want to and it's it frees up more you, you mm-hmm. don't have that time and i think time is still probably the most precious resource right it's Sure, we talk about the money, monetary resource, but ultimately, it comes down to time. And what are you doing with that time? Mm-hmm. And I find that just a fascinating thing is just those transitional times that we go through in life then too. Yeah. And like for me, it's also like in terms of that, that time is like I know that from like now until for like the next uh, like what, like 2038, I cannot die. Like, I just can't die for the next 20 years. Like, it's just for this kid, for Mackenzie, I can't die. Like, I'm not dying in, like, a stupid car accident. I'm driving slow. I'm driving conservatively, you know, for all those reasons. And I'm not, like, jumping up on crazy, doing crazy, like, young, dumb, and full of cum stuff. Uh, (laughs) But once you hit grandparenthood, you can die. Like, your your relationship to the, the grandchildren is such that you're like, if I go, parents got them, you know? like Yes and no. So I'll agree with that. Once I think the kids are maybe uh, entering puberty, something like that, maybe then even becoming an adult, like 15, 16, 18. And I say it at that age specifically because I still think traditionally you look at, okay, the grandparents still looked after kids until they were almost able to fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you still need that a little bit more uh, of being a grandparent because if the grandparent isn't there, that's where that wisdom, that's where a lot of that is being mm. passed down upon. So yes, from purely a, a support standpoint, yes, I agree. But I think from that that important knowledge and wisdom to be passed on, yeah. that you do need that grandparent role. I don't like to say it like because it's well, only for this period of time, but that's the period of time where it's absolutely critical to be able to pass on everything mm-hmm. i think too. and they're ready to receive it exactly yeah. yes yeah. yes yeah and it's uh yeah it's well i guess it's like uh i'm sort of looking at like if you if i were to die uh while my kid is 10 they're 
gonna have some trauma yes. for the rest of their lives. You know, and yes. whereas if they're if my if I have a grandchild and they're ten and I die, they'll have trauma. It's very different, and they'll lose they'll lose my wisdom. But like, it's a you know it's a very, it's different, very different. You know, it's like I'm a resource that's gone, but at least like they're not gonna like have a whole lot of stuff to deal with. You know. Um, and, and that's, but you're very right. Like there, there is like a, a golden window after adolescence, uh, you know, once puberty has sort of calmed down, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, as much as it ever does. And well, then, I don't know. I'm still not convinced it has for any of us, but, uh, okay. So you brought up death. This is a fantastic transition actually, mm-hmm. because your podcast yes, on death, mm-hmm. where did that start? What's, what's, where, where does death come into play and, mm-hmm. and why did you want to pursue such such a big endeavor on it? Um, so, like, I have listened to podcasts for a while. And, uh, you know, like, Joe Rogan uh, was one of my first. And uh, I like used for a lot. Um, uh, and uh, it's it, I love the medium. I love the long-form conversations that uh, don't really lend themselves well to, uh, like, uh, pulling out of context because there's no you, you need the entire context and it's like who would even listen if we to went it? into just that part on uh death and grandparents there and you only listen to a short period of time there you would have missed the whole picture yeah of it too. yeah and, and, and the people that listen to podcasts tend to have a longer tolerance for ideas and paragraphs rather than sentences and and bullet points and that's what I, that's why I, so like i've always loved that about podcast is like if, if somebody listens to a podcast they're the kind of person that will not take it out of context because they're fine with rolling through the whole 90 minutes to get to that point and so i've loved um i've loved podcasts and i've always wanted to do one uh the question is just like how who what would i do because as so I, this was me i think uh, uh as a second year medical student and i was like well i don't have a lot of time um I, I can't get like the, the coolest coaches or like people of the day uh, constantly trying to schedule all of that nonsense because it's just like, I don't have the time uh, and my limit, uh, resources are limited, but I feel like I can, I have the, the, the stamina for a conversation for, for all of that kind of stuff. And then the question of was then, so I want to do one, but what do I do? And uh, like, what's the format? And so I read about this, like a before I die wall, um, it was like this big art piece, uh, some, some artist out in California, she, uh, painted like a chalkboard paint all over a wall and then put a bucket of paint, uh, a bucket of chalk and said like, and then she wrote, uh, before I die, I want to, and then it was blank. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And people were really like, I want to be tried for piracy and all that stuff. I want to like, be what? Tried for piracy. Tried for, so like, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I want to be happy, like all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And, uh, so... Uh, so like the actual genesis of the ideas was uh, while I was floating. Um, are you familiar with like float yeah. tanks? Yeah. So I was floating and I was kind of percolating that idea around. And then I thought of expanding the like using death as a narrative arc. Uh, so um, using the before, when, and after as an as a as an arc for a prompt and being like you, you like building the structure around that and using uh, the I am as sort of like a where are you now. Uh, before you die, that's probably in the future. Uh, when you die is a very discreet, specific point. It's sort of like the climax of the movie. And then the after I die is sort of like the the, the falling action and being able to talk about it that way. And so I want... I, I, like, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then I went home and I interviewed Mackenzie. Uh, we were both a little drunk, uh, just as like a test, like a proof of concept. I was like, I think this works. And so I, then I expanded it out. But then like in terms of like why death, um, because I think that talking, using death as the structure 
um, will instantly make any conversation interesting. Like it will give it a weight and a depth that you wouldn't otherwise get uh, from another conversation. Like uh, me, it, uh, the, the interviews are, I see them almost as like a game. It's like, these are the rules. Uh, this, this, this is the, the board game that we're playing. Um, and these are the pieces. And now let's play and have a lot of fun within this, this concept. And so like being, because able, everybody knows what's coming. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. You know the structure of it, but mm. then it's, where do you take it from? Yeah. That? And it's like, how comfortable are you as the interviewee going? And like, it's just like, I'm, I'm willing to go as far deep and as, as emotionally, uh, as emotionally heavy as you are, uh, as the guest. it's just like, let's, let's see what happens. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's that's where the game almost happens. It's just like uh, I remember one time there there are a couple times, uh, uh, and I think they were on my better interviews too. Is a uh, one I didn't know that this buddy of mine had a near death experience while surfing, mm-hmm. uh, and like drowned and like resuscitated and had this crazy thing. Um, and then there's another where I interviewed a physician and I didn't know that his wife had died during childbirth, and uh, I was just like, oh, this is a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I was like. Let's go, man. Let's 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 do this. And uh, so it was a lot of it was a very interesting thing. But I, and then like once I was surprised by that, I was like, okay. But now let's figure out how to package this within those four prompts and being able to like understand like. At, so I got blindsided by that, but now I I understand the context rather than having no structure with which to work. And uh, and uh, like I think that death, yeah. Like I said, it makes every conversation interesting immediately. Just by once you bring it up seriously. And I also think that it's uh, a very valuable thing. I don't know for whom exactly, but I think that being able to hear these conversations, even if you're not willing to have them, to have heavy conversations on death, I think it is important to be able to listen to them and just at least be a part of those conversations because it's something that I think is lacking in a lot of our discourse is people, like I, I remember I hung out with my buddies, my college buddies, uh, back in the Cape a couple weekends ago, and we talked about nothing. We did nothing of of, of real substance together. Um, we we smoked weed. We hung out. We 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 went to the beach, but we didn't like. We didn't really get into it. Like, and one of our one of us one of our one of the friends, his dad just got diagnosed with cancer, and like he he had prostate cancer. It was just this whole thing, and like we didn't that didn't come out, you know. And it's like if we're we've been friends for like almost a decade now. And we aren't even diving into this stuff when it's us. And like, I have this podcast about, you know, it's like, it's, it's really tough. And, uh, just being able to give people uh, a space to be able to hear these conversations. So, uh, maybe jog something in them. Where does this fit in context with your, I, like I said, psychiatry, that's where ultimately you're taking this mm-hmm. over the next few years. How does, how do the conversations on death uh, even like, how does that fit in? Is that something that you even want to like it, clinically when you're practicing? Like, is that something that even intrigues you more is to help people with something like that then too? Yeah. Cause I think it's, a. Uh, <laughs> I think about it like, uh, there's, there's a saying in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and we've had to attend a few, uh, AA meetings, uh, as part of our, like, uh, uh, uh medical education yeah. is, uh, there's, they say a lot that like you, uh, are stunted at the level of emotional growth at which you start to become an alcoholic. So if you start really young, you kind of have that that mindset, and you and you it's hard to grow beyond that until you become sober. And uh, I think of that a lot in terms of medical students. Like once you, as soon as you enter medical school, it is a traumatic and harrowing experience to go through medical education uh, and residency, and such that like 
you're you're almost stunted at that level like if you are like the orthopedic bro you're going to be the orthopedic bro for the rest of your life i automatically thought of did you ever watch the show scrubs yeah okay it's exactly where i went with that the yeah. second that, that like there's they have the interns and they have uh the orthos on the show and it's like that's exactly, exactly. how i just thought of it so and like you know and like even <laughs> if you do like medical like a, a medical medicine residency uh and you're, you're an internist working in the hospital seeing people die every day you still have i feel like you still have like a i'm going to cure your death like a like a very much like an antagonistic relationship with death and um i want to develop a practice that is very comfortable with the idea um, but in terms of like, what would I do like for the next like five, 10 years, uh, or at least five through residency is probably not very much. Like I might take my time to hold conversations a- a- about the subject if I see somebody really needs it. Um, and I've done that in my medical education already. Um, and it's like, I, I butted heads with the palliative head, uh, palliative care team because they, they didn't think that they needed to have the conversation. I think that they did. So I held it myself. Um, and it was just it's it's a tough thing to to get people to talk about it especially within the medical context um i'm interested in doing a hospice and palliative care fellowship uh it's a year after i finish residency so palliative care means like uh uh relieving symptoms uh and hospice is like you have about six months to live uh so that's really like get ready to die um and they go together but they're not necessarily always the same thing so you can palliate somebody that isn't necessarily going to die but or but you have like you you palliate everybody who's going through hospice right does that make sense yep um so i want to do that uh but it's a question of like where my timing will be in terms of where i finish residency because i want to um the like i want to and this is going to open a whole other can of worms is uh i want to develop a practice built around psychedelics um, and the use of psychedelics for mental health and wellness. Um, and I, so like, I think of it as the joke is, and it doesn't really land. I need to figure out how to word this better is I want to do uh, psychedelics and hospice and palliative care because I want to take care of people when they think they're dying. And I want to take care of people when they're actually dying. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, it's like kind of, I don't know. It's, it's a little too morbid for a lot of people. So it's a, uh, uh, no, I, yeah. I'm immediately thinking of uh, just did a recent ayahuasca journey and I can like, that's immediately just, I went to that place right there yeah. uh, when just going through uh, a tough time of the night and I, I can completely relate to yeah. that saying specifically. And they're so very similar kinds of things, being able to like work somebody through it, uh, prepare them for it. Like all the, it's like the same, it's very, very similar in texture, but they're very, obviously very different things. Yes, so many different <laughs> questions here. Um, types of psychedelics, but also training that you training that you want to seek out on this. Is this more of something you want to seek? Other medical professionals who are using this. Is this you want to go down study with other shamans, whether it's uh, Native Americans in mm-hmm. the U.S. in in Peru and uh, go over to Russia to, I mean, like the, the, the original shamans supposedly like Mm -hmm. their, uh, aboriginals, like where do you want to get the knowledge to be able to do this? And, or how are you cultivating it currently? So, um, there's, so the, the way, the, the route right now for Western medicine to access psychedelics, um, within the next few years, uh, MDMA will finish uh, the phase three studies. Uh, yeah. 
um, like right around like my halfway, like 2021. So like halfway through my residency. And then I'll be able to really see like, where are we going with this? Will it be in time for me when I finish residency to open up a private practice? Sure. Um, and then there's psilocybin or magic mushrooms. Um, and that's, that's in the pipeline as well. Uh, there's also, you know, medical marijuana all over the place. Um, and then there's a, so then, then there's like questions of like ayahuasca, ibogaine, um, uh, like 5-MeO-DMT, like all, all, like there's a big rabbit hole. Yeah. And, uh, the way that I see my future practice is, uh, to connect, to be a node. So there's this big hulking mass of, of, of Western medicine. Um, and then there's this weird, super crunchy, like out there people that are doing the psychedelic work on their own right now, you know, and like people that are underground doing good work, but they're like, you know, they're, they're like kind of what you would think about when you think of like uh, somebody that runs underground psychedelic experiences, you know, and that's fine. We need both of those people. Uh, but we need, I think we need to connect the two gently. Um, and we can't force ayahuasca into a clinical trial. Um, and I don't think that, um, you know, like, like controlled doses of psilocybin would be appropriate for the shaman working underground. Um, you know, because there's no controlled dose. It's, they're going to speak and they're going to go, they're going to have that understanding during the experience. Yeah. And they're going to do it. They're they're That's how they work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. And, uh, and I think that for, for me as a future psychedelic psychiatrist, I want to be able to push Western medicine, uh, out of its comfort zone and into a space where like psychedelics are more talked about, where, um, like I, I almost envision my practice being built up of entirely physicians, because if I can treat physicians, then they can go and treat their patients with more, uh, you know, with, with more presence, with more empathy, with more compassion, and and go into their own family lives with, with more with all of those traits, uh, like as heavy hitters almost, you know, uh, with uh, like great nodes of, of like really impacting, um, because uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. <laughs> Where. Where do we need to get between now and the next two years, the next four years, basically to, to get to that point? Like, because it's, from my understanding, it's really only the MDMA that they're truly studying. Like, mm-hmm. is it, we just need to get the funding? Is it, is it, yeah. we need more people standing up for this? Like, what do you see to be able to get that to happen? So like me personally, yeah. I, I, my role is just to keep my head down and, finish resident, like go through medical school, finish residency. Be able to practice. Yeah. Be on, like, yeah. be ready. Be, yeah. be like the, like the dumb, like 18 year old kid at Helm's Deep. That's like, Oh, I get a spear and a helmet. This is great. <laughs> and I spear an orc, you know, like I'm, I want to be like that guy, kind of like, that's my role. Sure. And like, there are a lot of people really, uh, and like, uh, there's the Michael Pollan book, yep. uh, how to change your mind. Out, yeah. It's great. Um, and he's, you know, he wrote a book that I'll never have to write because, cause he's a far better writer than I am, but he's, it was a really hard book to write. And, uh, I'm glad that he wrote it. And there are people that are filling in and all the of nice niches. thing about it is I think he just scratches the surface on it. Like he goes just deep enough for people to, to, for them to pique their interest. Uh, and I don't, but I don't think also goes so deep where it's like, well, this guy's just out of his mind, like just crazy with this. Mm-hmm. So like, I think he blends that for both the, the, somebody just hears it and they're like a little bit piqued interest, but also somebody who's already into it and, and can, can relate to it very well. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. And that's that and that's sort of like what I see my my like generational role being because everybody else who came before me uh, who's interested in psychedelics as a therapeutic uh, treatment modality, they had to go into research. They had to do that was the it. hard that was it. bench work that I am one. I am not interested in doing. I do not want to work with mouse models. I do not want to work in small clinical trials that have to randomize and like build these really crazy st- structures to keep people on the study. Like, I'm so glad that there are people that are doing that work now, and. Uh, they're the one, and I know that there's a lot of res, like fundraising going on for psilocybin and MDMA, and the, there's like a lot of people working behind the scenes, like a lot of like Silicon Valley money is going into it because of like Burning Man, um, and so like sure. I know that I, I feel like the, the the momentum is there, and it's just being able to put myself in the right spot at the right time, and so like uh, in terms like you there there are like organizations you can donate to. There's uh, like uh, one thing that I did over a summer, uh, a couple summers ago, was uh, work, volunteer for Zendo, uh, and they they're an organization of MAPS and uh, the, the the MDMA uh, psychedelic studies. Um, they they have Zendo, and Zendo what they do is they go to music festivals and and help with psychedelic harm reduction. So if somebody's whacked out on MDMA, rather than having them go to a medical tent. Uh, where they would take up resources and not a great place, yeah. uh, not a great uh, like not a great vibe. Uh, then they can go to the, the Zendo tent where people can you know work, sit with them for the whole experience for as long as they need. Uh, they can come back afterwards if they need to help integrate or, or, or yeah. be able to process a, a crazy experience that they had, um, and and give them a solid framework. And uh, I worked with them, uh, and it was a really really great experience. I got to I got to talk with a lot of people who. Just like one dude, he had stripped naked in the middle of a, a like a like a musical state, like uh like in the big dance floor. He like uh, at the festival, he stripped naked because he was just feeling it. He was really really just like this is great. And then he, like everyone recoiled around him, and he just had a really hard time processing that. Yeah. And some another girl, she had she took what she thought was acid, what did not sound like it was acid, and being able to like, am I a bad person? Like all of that kind of stuff, and being able to help them integrate. And then later, as the night rolled around, uh, there was this dude who was just totally. Uh, rolling his face off on, on what we think thought was MDMA, and I had to like tackle him at one point and chase him down. It was just like a whole, it's a wild night. And I was like, if this is, you know, if I can take this, but like tone it down a little bit so it's more controlled for a psychedelic practice, I'm totally on board. Eugene, I, I think before we go anywhere else, I no, I think this is a perfect place to 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 bring this to uh, a close. But where where can people find out more about you, like? If they want to know about on death, I mean, we didn't even get necessarily into mobility and mindfulness, but uh, and or if they're just looking into what psychedelic research, like where 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 can they find out more about you and, and more about uh, some of the topics we've talked about here today? Yeah, so my website uh, is MNMWOD, that's uh, Mobility and Mindfulness Work of the Day, um, MNMWOD.com, and uh, there you can find my podcast um, and on death that we talked about and my weekly reflections on medical school. So I've written uh, de- uh, weekly reflections from the first anatomy lab to now the start of my fourth year um, and everywhere in between. And it's a week by week account, uh, like almost like, uh, like, a, like a public journal of my experiences through medical school. Uh, and I think that that's interesting just because uh, most people, when they write about their medical education, it's like when they're retired or long after the fact, not like an on the ground uh, current account, uh, almost like a war journal. And uh, there you can find that. And uh, uh, oh, in terms of like for psychedelic research, look, uh, 
check out um, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. I think that's a really great resource. He references a lot of really great resources there um, that you know you can kind of go off into the weeds in it for whatever direction you want. Um, and uh, and he gives a really great skeptics account of like why you should be uh, why you should be encouraged about the psychedelics and why you should be uh, concerned about the psychedelics because there's a lot we don't know uh, we don't know exactly like how do we manage because a lot of the studies that we do right now they're they're they they really select the people that they're including very very carefully so like what happens when you have somebody with bipolar disorder or a family history of bipolar disorder um and you give them some psychedelics and can that kick off a manic episode and if it does what do you do do you like do you how do you manage that uh, and that's that's another role that i see myself as going forward is like okay we know how it works for like normal healthy well people but like how do we like is this is this even a viable option at all uh, for somebody with other medical, with other psychiatric uh, disorders going on, and like, how do we navigate that space? Or somebody who isn't yet schizophrenic, but maybe do we kick off a schizophrenic? I don't know. It's all this kinds of crazy stuff that I'm just very, very intrigued by. So, um, Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, is a really, really great resource. Eugene, thank you again. <laughs> thank you. Hey guys, and thank you for listening to the Bare Naked Health Podcast. If you want to support the show, please head over to iTunes, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, give a five-star rating, positive comment. This really helps other people find this show uh, or just share it with your friends. Uh, Hopefully they can get something out of it too. But thank you very much and look forward to talking to you soon. Mm -hmm.